Well, I don't know why they let me do this, but we're starting a new series, and I'm kicking it off. I'm going to look at the screen here to get it, but it's called Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, and, and the series is going to take us all the way up to Easter, and we're going to do a deep dive on Psalm 51, which many of you have, have read, where David is really confessing his sin to the Lord. And kind of showing the anatomy of what confession looks like and why it's so awesome. But actually in that psalm, there's a superscript that tells us exactly what was going on in David's life that caused him to write this psalm of confession. And that's what we're going to look at today is kind of the backstory. And the reason it's so important is because if confessing our sin is so amazing, if it erases shame, which is everything our culture wants to do right now, how come we don't want to confess our sin? How come when someone confronts us about our sin, we hate it? We hate to have our sin exposed. If someone comes to us and says, hey, can we talk for a minute? It's like literally the worst words you can hear and your stomach just drops. Um, If confessing sin erases shame, helps us experience renewal, why do we hate it? And we're going to look at David's life here in 2 Samuel 12 to see some clues. So 2 Samuel 12, page 263. I'll give you guys a little orientation while you turn there. Okay, so God saved his people Israel out of Egypt, a people for himself so he could love them and show them his glory and teach them how to live to flourish. And they weren't like the other nations. Their king was God. God led them into battle. God protected them. God answered their questions. God provided for them. And here in in 1 Samuel, the book before this, Israel says, that's not good enough. We want an earthly king. We don't just want God as our king. We want an earthly king. And Samuel says, don't do this. When you get an earthly king, he's going to take your sons, take your daughters. And they say, we want a king. And God says, Samuel, all right, let let him go. He gives them Saul as their first king. This is the king they wanted. Head and shoulders above everybody else. Dude looks good. He's a coward. He compromises on God's word every chance he gets and shrinks back in fear. he, He wins a battle. God tells him, devote everything to destruction. He keeps all the sheep and everything valuable. And Samuel calls him out and he says, we were just going to sacrifice it to the Lord. He's always got a rationalization for why he didn't quite follow what God said. And God pulls the kingdom away from him and gives it to David, a man after God's own heart. And really, he's a little boy after God's own heart. A boy after God's own heart. But here in our passage, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, we're going to see how the man after God's own heart fell tragically. And we're going to see why confessing our sin for David really can erase our shame. Why it can erase our shame. So 2 Samuel 11, the chapter before we end, opens with Israel's at war. The ark of God, his presence, is at battle with Joab the general. And God's people are there. And David's mighty men are there. But David isn't there. David's taking a nap in the palace. And he gets bored of taking a nap. And he goes up on the roof and he's walking around and he sees a very beautiful woman taking a bath and he lusts after her. Now at this point, David could have said, okay, Lord, forgive me, I'm moving on. But he doesn't. He says, he sends his advisor, says, find out who this is. 
And they come back and they say, hey, this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who's one of the mighty men. This is one of David's mighty men who rolled with him when he had nothing. When it really was David and the mighty men versus everybody in a literal sense. And he could have said, forgive me, I'm lusting after my friend's wife. But instead he says, go get her for me. He takes her, he lays with her, and when he's done, he sends her away. Month later, maybe a little more, she sends word to him, Bathsheba, and says, I'm pregnant. So he decides to come clean. No, he decides to cover it up. He calls to Joab, the general. He, ha- he, says, he says, send back Uriah to me. And he's thinking, all right, the math might be a little off, but if I bring home Uriah, send him home to see his wife, nobody's going to suspect me. Well, Uriah is the man of God that David used to be. And he says, he, goes, he comes home, he reports to the king, and then he sleeps in the courtyard on the floor. He doesn't even go back to his house, which obviously is close enough that David could see it from his roof. That's how close, he's not going back there. And David brings him in and says, why didn't you go home and see your wife? And he says, the armies of God and the ark of God are living in tents in battle. How can I go home and eat and drink and be with my wife? So David says, dang it, I still got a chance to cover this all up. Come back here tomorrow, stay a couple more days. He gets him eating, he gets him drinking, he gets him drunk. He's like, okay, now he's definitely going to go home. He sleeps outside in the courtyard. So David's like, all right, I got this. He writes a note, send Uriah to the front lines of the battle, get way too close to the enemies, and when they start shooting arrows, back up and leave him there all by himself. He sends this to his general, Joab. And he gives a little note to Uriah and says, hey, take this to Joab, it's really important. And he marches him off with his death, his death orders in his pocket. Okay, this is exactly what happens. They send back word to David. Joab's not happy about this. He says, look, when David says, why'd you go so close to the wall? Tell him Uriah the Hittite's dead. And it looks like David got away with it because after the time of mourning's over, he sends for Bathsheba, he takes her as his wife, she bears him a son, and it looks like absolute power corrupted, and he got away with it. But the text says at the end of 11, the thing he had done displeased the Lord. It displeased the Lord. God knew. And in our chapter, chapter 12, God sends his prophet Nathan to confront David. And God sends his word and his people to confront us today. Our big idea is the Lord confronts our sin so that we can experience renewal. God in his grace confronts us in our sin. We might think we got away with it. We might think we covered it up and no one knows, but God knows. And he's going to confront our sin so we can experience renewal. Let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. Let me pray. God, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. God, your word tells us that life is found in your ways and we choose our ways. In your grace, you allow us to confess our sin and experience renewal, and we say, not today. And you come for us, Lord. I pray that you would convict us, you would soften our hearts to see that true life is in your word, in your ways, God. 
Thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is God's word. The Lord confronts our sin so we can experience renewal. Why? The Lord needs to confront our sin because we're blind to our own sin. We can't see it. Look at verses 1 through 6. The Lord sends Nathan to David. This has been maybe at least a nine-month process. The child's been born. And we've seen no remorse. Nothing. Why? Because he's blind to his sin. Nathan comes to him and he could have said, you're an adulterer and a murderer and you need to die. He doesn't take the frontal approach. He brings a, a, a little case for him to decide, a legal matter. Now, this isn't abnormal. This is something kings do. According to Deuteronomy 17, the king's job is basically to have quiet time. Like, read God's word, write your own copy, memorize it. And, and, and in God's word, there's like case law. Like, if a man lusts after a woman, da, 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 da. 
Well, then he has to apply it to like, well, what about this case with this person? So it's like the Supreme Court. The king doesn't get to rule by his own authority, okay? So it's not abnormal that, that Nathan would bring a case to David for him to decide. That's one of his jobs, okay? And he's supposed to judge it according to God's word. He tells him a parable. He said, look, there's a rich man. He has so many sheep, so many flocks. And then there's a poor man. He's got one little sheep, just a little female lamb. And it sleeps in his arm and he nurses it. His kids love it. And the rich man had a guest come. And the rich man wouldn't take one from everything he had. He grabbed it from the poor man and killed it and ate it. And David says, his anger burns. The problem isn't that David's moral compass isn't working. The problem isn't that David doesn't know God's law. He says he needs to repay it fourfold. That's exactly what Exodus 22.1 says. You steal a sheep, you pay back four. He knows exactly what God's word says. And then he pronounces the death penalty. And this isn't a death penalty offense, but because of the heartlessness and how egregious it is and that the guy has everything and this guy has nothing and he took it anyways, he had no pity, the text says, David says he deserves to die. David's moral compass is working just fine, thank you very much. The problem is, it's not working towards himself. It's not working towards himself. My wife, like when she got her braces done, I don't know if it was middle school or high school, but they did an awesome job. Like they lined her teeth up perfect. She doesn't have the big gaps like I have. And um, because of that, she can get food in her teeth like very easily. And she has trained me. When we're eating, I need to be looking, and I need to tell her right away, you got spinach in your teeth. Thank you. And I have to tell her, like, which side, you know, and there's, like, the mirror effect going on. She's trained me, like, look, tell, quick. Okay? Problem is this. We all have blind spots. Like, she can't see the spinach in her tooth. Everybody else can. That's how our sin is. David didn't see his sin. A lot of people were seeing his sin. You might not see your sin. Everyone else does. It's very obvious. But not everybody's like my wife who's like, tell me right away so I can handle this. Let me know right away. We have blind spots. We look at other people's sin with a magnifying glass, but we don't want to look in the mirror and see ours. And so God confronts us. God confronts us, and we should welcome it. We should welcome it like my wife says, hey, check my teeth really quick, because everyone knows. We need to welcome confrontation. Because of my job with crew, like, I have authority, but it's not like a strong authority, so I get called out and confronted a lot, very frequently. Um, so people tell me, like, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And it's like, okay, can you just tell me the general topic so I don't have a panic attack? Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes... It's completely off base. But I can still take 5% and be like, you know what, they were probably just trying to give me a hard time. Like that probably wasn't from the Lord. But I can take something away from this. That's valid. Sometimes they nail you right between the eyes. Like I was uh, helping relaunch crew in Berlin, Germany. I had this guy on my stint team. I almost had to send him home because he didn't talk for the first month. And I was like, where is this guy at spiritually? I can't tell. Well, this guy, we're at the campus sharing our faith where Einstein was in Berlin there. And he says, can I talk to you for a minute? Sure. I've been noticing something about you this past month. You're never content with anything God's doing. You always need more. 
But I said, thank you very much for telling me that. I'm going to pray about it. And I just said that to say it because that's what I know to say now. But I thought, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. That's like ridiculous. And I went home and I prayed about it. I was like, he's exactly right, actually. He knows me better than I knew myself. And I needed to welcome. If I just said, this guy doesn't know anything. He, I know a lot. He knows. I would have missed out on God was trying to do something in my life. We need to welcome confrontation. Two, some of us, we need to actually confront people in love, speak the truth in love. If it's true that we're blind to our own sin like David is, if it's true that other people aren't, if it's true that God in his mercy is confronting us so we can erase shame and experience renewal, we need to speak up to people. We need to confront them in love like, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? You know, not to be unkind, but to bring restoration. Does that make sense? If, if it's true that we're blind to our sin, we need to welcome confrontation and we need to be willing to give confrontation. Some people are easy to confront. Thank you so much for telling me that. I appreciate it. Some people are hard. And we've had some experiences where they didn't listen at all and they blamed and they shifted. And I think sometimes God's calling us to do it again. Do it again. Because if we're blind and they're still alive, God's not done. God confronts our sin because we're blind to our own sin. Next thing we see is God confronts our sin because we've despised the word of God. We've despised the word of God. Look at 7 through 10. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and your arms and the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil in his sight? Would despise the word of the Lord. Despise just means this, to hold it very lightly. To treat as worthless something very valuable. David knew God's commandments. Don't commit adultery. Did it. Don't commit murder. Did it. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or anything that's your neighbor's. Did it. He knew God's word. The problem isn't that he didn't know it. The problem is that he treated it lightly. He treated it as not a big deal. Parents, you guys get your kids some shoes, which you're about to do. It's about to be, maybe if you're a responsible parent, you've already done this. You get them the spring shoes. What's the first thing in Royal Oak these kids are going to do with their new spring shoes? They're going to run in those muddy backyards, and they're going to destroy these bad boys. Why? Because they don't care. The shoes mean nothing to them. You say, these were expensive. Doesn't matter to me. They cost $60. That means nothing to me. <laughs> it means nothing to them because they treat it something valuable as if it's not because they don't care. And that's how we can be with God's word. We know what he's saying. We just don't care. It's not as important to us as it is to God, so we don't care. And that's what David did. He despised the word of God. Where do you despise God's word? Where do you treat it like it's not that valuable? You know what he's saying. You just don't care that much, as much as he does. The thing he's nailing him for here is sexual sin. Look at verse 10. The sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
There's a lot of sins David's doing here, but the one that God's saying, you really despise me, was sexual sin. Why does God care so much? Our sexuality is so close to our worship because it's the most intimate relationship we can have with another person. And it's also a part of like, you know, we know the Great Commission, make disciples of all the nations, but there's also like a um, cultural mandate that God gives in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This is part of God's plan to have his image bearers all over the earth, ruling and making decisions the way he did and showing what God's like to everybody. And sex is integral to that, male and female, creating kids, raised up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord to look more like God all around the earth. So it's part of his plan. And Satan is attacking us on something that is central to the plan of God. Okay? And we treat it as of little importance, by and large. Do you treat God's word lightly in lusting after other men and women in pornography? Jesus said, if, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. Do you treat it as, ah, it's not that big of a deal. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm under a lot of pressure. I got to do this. Do we treat God's word as lightly? Do we longingly look on somebody else's spouse, their husband, their wife, and be like, man, why didn't I marry that person? That's the 10th commandment. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's husband. It's, we can't take that lightly. Some of you would have an affair today if you could. I read the statistics. It's like the amount of people that would have an affair if they would never get caught and no one would ever know. And it's like shockingly high. It's so shockingly high, I'm not even going to cite it because I don't think it can be, it can't be that right. But if you knew there would be no consequences for your sin that anyone would find out about, would you do it? And we take God's word so lightly in the area of sexual sin. We despise it. Did this lead to life for David? Did it just go great for him? It ruined his life. It ruined his family's life. It won't be any better for us. We can't despise God's word. God confronts us because we take his word too lightly. And finally, we're going to see God confronts our sin because the Lord will forgive our sin. The Lord will forgive our sin. Look at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I've sinned against the Lord. The Lord confronts us because he wants to forgive our sin, but we have to confess. Now, how many of you guys read this and you're like, this is a, lot, a whole chapter of him being an idiot and despising God's word, and then most of a chapter of him getting called out for it, and, and he has to do it through the back door because he's not going to listen because his heart is so hard and he's so blind. And then he says one little sentence and he's, he's off the hook. If, how many of you moms, your kid just says, I'm really sorry. And that's it. No more lecture. Anybody? <laughs> no, usually not. Usually not. We know for a fact this is a genuine confession because look what Nathan says. The Lord has put away your sin. You're not going to die. We know it's genuine. If you contrast this to the first king of Israel, Saul, Saul has a lot of words for Samuel when he calls him out. Well, see, the thing is, we actually did follow the Lord because he said this, and it doesn't look like I followed him, but actually I was following him. He rationalizes, he justifies, he flexes what God said. David says, you got me. He got himself. 
his righteous anger towards the guy who stole the little tender lamb and killed it for himself when he had everything, he's naked before God. He's completely exposed. He said, I did it. No excuse, nothing. I did it. It's genuine. It sounds, sounds to me like the tax collector, the Pharisee saying, I'm thankful I'm not like this tax collector, this, this sinner. And the tax collector says, God have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. That is enough of a confession to save us with our God. Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I sinned against the Lord. God is confronting us because he will forgive our sin. David knew he deserved to die. Look, Leviticus 24 says, if you take a human life, you deserve to die. Leviticus 20 says, if you commit adultery, you deserve to die. David knew and he was going to take it on the chin. I sinned against the Lord. We know that just saying it's okay doesn't take away a sin. When I was 14, I was working at Tasty Twist. Have you guys, any of you guys been there in East Lansing? It's a little soft serve ice cream place. I, I was working there. It was a fun job at Tasty Twist. That was like the hangout of town. Sometimes, I was actually a pretty good employee to be honest, but sometimes I give away free ice cream. That Michigan State women's volleyball team would come in. Hi, how are you? This one's on the house. Don't worry about it. You know, big man on campus, 14-year-old Dan is letting the MSU women's volleyball team get free ice cream. Was it free ice cream? No. Scott was paying for the ice cream. Scott's the owner of Tasty Twist. (laughs) Something that gets forgiven is not free. Something that gets forgiven, I didn't know how it worked. I didn't know who was paying for that ice cream. Now I do. I mean, it's obvious because I'm an adult now. Scott is paying for the ice cream I'm giving away for free. We don't know how David can be forgiven. David didn't know. We do. Because we need a greater king than David. Right before David threw it all away, right before these consequences destroy his family, the consequences God tells him are so real. The sword's not going to depart from your house. Someone that you tried to hide your sexual sin, the guy who gets you, I'm going to flaunt it. It was his kids. The next thing that happens is his one son rapes his daughter. And David's lost the moral high ground to do anything about it, and he shrinks back and says nothing. So one of his other sons takes a long game and kills that son. And David says nothing about that either. And then that son Absalom gets all of Israel to follow him, and he turns on his dad, and he lays with his concubines on the roof, and everybody knows what happened. God forgives our sin, but the consequences don't always go away, right? We needed a greater king. First Samuel and Second Samuel are telling us, your greatest king, the man after God's own heart, wasn't worthy. He could never bring about the restoration, the deliverance that you need. We need a greater king. God promised David in Second Samuel 7, there's going to be one of your descendants who's going to sit on your throne forever. Forever. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus the king was never blind to his own sin because he didn't have any. He was tempted in every way as we are, but he never sinned. Never sinned. He was not blind to his own sin. Jesus the king never took God's word lightly. When he was tempted in the wilderness, and Satan has given him all these temptations that don't seem that unreasonable. 
You're so hungry, you've fasted 40 days. Turn these stones into bread. He could do that. It wouldn't seem that bad to me in my Saul-like thinking. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of our God. Jesus never despised God's word. He never sinned. He never despised God's word. That's why he's the king who can bring us actual forgiveness. The reason we can be forgiven is because Jesus never sinned. He never despised God's word. And he's willing to say, here, why don't you take my credit before God so God sees you as perfectly righteous? Why don't you give me your sin and brokenness when you've tried to do it your own way? I'm going to die on the cross for it. And he's willing to trade. And all we have to do is say, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. There was this billboard like five, seven years ago that said this year, Thousands of men will die from stubbornness. Did you guys see that one? Thousands of men will die from stubbornness. Why? Because they have a problem and they're not going to go to the doctor and talk about it. You know what's shameful? In this room, most of us have heard the gospel. We know we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know God wants to forgive us of our sin. And when we sin, we say, I didn't sin. I'm not that bad. I don't need to bring this to the Lord. Like we actually know better. We need to bring it to the Lord. He's the only one who can do anything about it. He wants to forgive us, but we have to confess it without rationalization, without justification. We have to confess it to the Lord. We have a better king than David. He was perfect and he is willing to trade with us. He's willing to die for our sin and give us his life. He's willing to give us the perfect life with God forever that we don't deserve. What if God left David in his sin? What if he just let him think he covered it up, it's all good? The mercy of this passage is that we might think we got away with our sin. We might think no one knows and it's not affecting anybody, but the Lord is coming for us. The Lord is going to confront us. Why? Because he wants to forgive us. We need to be quick to confess. We need to welcome confrontation and we need to step up and confront other people in love. Why? Because we know the gospel. We know God wants to forgive us. But it only comes through confession. Confession is the key that unlocks what we're looking for. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much, Lord, that you pursue us in our sin. We're blind to our sin, Lord, but you're not. You give us other people in the body of Christ to confront us on our sin, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Help us accept that, Lord, as painful as it can be, as uncomfortable as it can be. Help us welcome your correction through others. And help us step up and be a vessel who can correct others, Lord, as much as it's just seems like exactly the last thing we want to do. We know that we need forgiveness. We know we're worse than we think and we're worse than everybody else thinks, Lord. And you long to forgive us, but we have to confess. Thank you for confronting us, Lord. Thank you that your word says that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us from all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus, Lord. We know how that happens, Lord, because you measured up, Lord, when we didn't. You hung on that cross where we deserve, God, and you're willing to forgive us, Lord. 
Don't let us come short by wanting to hide our sin now, Lord, when we know that you want to cover it for us, Lord. Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. In Jesus' name, amen.